You are listening to a message from Southwood Presbyterian Church in Huntsville, Alabama. Our passion is to experience and express grace. Join us. Turn with me to Luke chapter 8. Luke 8 is on page 864 of the Bible on the pew in front of you. We're going to be looking this morning at the story at the end of the chapter where Jesus heals a woman and a young girl. That's where we're going to be focusing our time, but I want to look back first to the beginning of this chapter, uh, to the first three verses uh, of Luke 8. Let me read those for you. Soon afterward, Jesus went on through cities and villages, proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. And the twelve were with him, and also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. Mary called Magdalene from whom seven demons had gone out, and Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's household manager, and Susanna, and many others who provided for them out of their means. We uh, looked at these verses on our way through Luke's gospel a few weeks ago when 50-some of our women were on a retreat. I thought this morning would be an appropriate one to revisit them before we leave this chapter of Luke's gospel. Our passage this morning does feature Jesus healing two women, but the passage is not primarily about the fact that they are female. It's just not the main focus of it. However, in these verses, at the beginning of Luke 8, the gender of the people following Jesus is significant. They're providing for his ministry, serving him and his disciples, and it's highlighted that there are women there. And that's significant because Jesus honors women among his followers in a way that is completely countercultural for his day, and in particular for a Jewish rabbi in these days. It says, many women, many women are traveling among his followers and using their gifts and graces to support the ministry of Jesus and His kingdom. Last time when we paused briefly, I said this is a good reminder to us that Jesus is good news of great joy for all people. That the new community He's building includes women as well as others who were often excluded in His day. I challenged us, there were a lot of men here that morning, to consider how we treat the women God has placed in our community. Do we honor them, value them, thank God for them, and work to promote the use of their gifts in the life of the church? We must do that. But since many of you ladies are back uh, today, let me speak to our women and, and young girls for just a minute this morning. This is something I hope you already know, um, but Jesus treasures you. Uh, You are so precious to him and so significant in his kingdom. He would have you to know that. No matter how discounted or uh, marginalized or taken for granted or mistreated you may feel by anyone else, Jesus honors you. And, And your value is not merely in being female. 
God created us, man and woman, male and female, in his image with unique and important gifts that we might reflect his image in this world. And so you, ladies, are image bearers. You bear the image of the king of the universe, your God. You all reflect it to us in a variety of ways. He has made you women who are like him, creative. You consistently work hard and and make things beautiful. He's made you women who are like him, loving. You teach us so much about what that means and looks like. Women who are like him, orderly, in the midst of family and work chaos. Women who are like him, gentle and patient And that's so needed. Listen, Jesus loves you and who he has made you to be. And his kingdom community should always honor and engage women as he did. We as the church are not always known for doing that well to our shame. Any Christian community is weakened when it neglects to engage well with its godly women. And so I would say to you women this morning, uh, we are a weaker reflection of the image of our God without you. We are weaker witnesses to the glory of his grace to this community that he's placed us in uh, without your unique personality and giftedness. We are so thankful for you. Uh, Don't step away or think you're not needed here, please continue to work with us to see the kingdom of God advanced as these women did who walked alongside Jesus when he was here. Let's pray this morning and then we'll look at the end of chapter 8. Father, we give you thanks for the women in this particular community. We are grateful for your giving them to us. We're grateful for the ways in which they bless and help us. Father, some of them uh, may come this morning particularly rejoicing. Others perhaps particularly hurting. And we may not know every heart, but Father, you do. And so we pray this morning that wherever their hearts are, they would know of their value in their Father's eyes. They would know of their significance in your kingdom. That they would know that they are treasured here in this church the way their Savior treasures them. Would they feel as treasured by us as they are by you? Father, we look now together, all your people, men, women, children, we look to your word because it alone is what directs us We want to hear from you. We pray that you would shape us in ways that would challenge us, in ways that would uh, stretch us beyond our natural priorities, our natural things that we chase after. Would it reshape our hearts and allow us to reflect more of our glorious Savior? It's in his name we pray. Amen. The passage we'll be walking through this morning is a really neat juxtaposition of characters who encounter Jesus. 
remember that these are the last two episodes in a series of four miracles displaying the incredible power and the divine deliverance that Jesus brings. He's already calmed the storm with a word. He's already spoken and demons came out of a man who'd been possessed for years. And now his power over things that are beyond our control is on display again in this passage. You'll notice as we read that he exercises authority over a disease that it makes clear to point out no doctor has been able to touch. And then over death itself, perhaps the ultimate example of something that is beyond our control. There's so many rich threads in these people and in Jesus' interaction with them that we're just going to walk right through the story together this morning and then we'll ask some questions of ourselves at the end. Um, The story opens in verse 40 of Luke 8. Now, when Jesus returned, the crowd welcomed him for they were all waiting for him. When Jesus returned from having been across the sea healing the demoniac, he comes back and there's a, there's a crowd waiting for him. They'll be here through much of the story, uh, many witnesses of these events and the, the historicity of what's going on here in this passage. And these crowds coming around Jesus are, are all so close to him, we'll see as we go through, but it, at this moment, at the beginning of the passage, all of a sudden the crowds part and, and make way for someone. You, you, you hear the, the whispers running through, step back, step back, it's Jairus, it's Jairus, step back. And Jairus shows up, there came a man named Jairus, who was a ruler of the synagogue, and falling at Jesus' feet, He implored him to come to his house for he had an only daughter about 12 years of age and she was dying. Jairus is a ruler of the local synagogue. His position is one where he's deciding who's going to read the law this week. Who will be teaching on the Sabbath? How do we keep our religious practices in line? He's a guy who is ordering things, who is well-connected well-respected in the community. But Jesus and the uh, synagogue people in general, the leaders especially, uh, they haven't been getting along real great, have they? In fact, already, as we've seen in Luke's gospel, Jesus has been run out of synagogues. Um, Oftentimes, the reception has not been warm. Jairus and his buddies, other synagogue leaders, were probably looking to avoid this controversial Jesus figure But now Jairus is desperate, isn't he? His life has been disrupted. He's used to it being organized and under control. He's confident and capable, but but now his little girl is seriously ill. And he comes and throws himself at Jesus' feet to beg for help. Perhaps many of us can relate to Jairus successful professional, respected citizen, an orderly life, things look pretty good, seem to be going all right, but then something interrupts your idyllic life, shatters your controlled world. In this case, for Jairus, the sickness of his 
beloved daughter that no one can seem to help. I don't know what it may have been or may yet be in your life that would interrupt and break in like that. But Jairus, when it happens, finding himself in great need, does what? He runs to Jesus. And Jesus begins to go with him to his home. Whew! It's going to be okay, right? Jesus is coming. My little girl, she's going to be all right. You can see Jairus' spirits rise. But then as Jesus and these growing crowds, because this is quite an event, they begin to squeeze through the streets to Jairus' house. Someone very different from Jairus shows up. Verse 43, there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years. And though she had spent all her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. Let me try to paint a picture of this woman's life for you from what we know of of Jewish law and culture here. She has had a discharge of blood for 12 years consecutively. Doctors can't fix it. It's only getting worse. She's tried everything, but the bleeding hasn't stopped. Listen to what Numbers tells us is reality for her. Numbers chapter 5 at verse 1, God gives commands to his people for how they are to operate. He spoke to Moses saying, command the people of Israel that they put out of the camp everyone who is leprous or has a discharge. There's her problem. And everyone who's unclean through contact with the dead, you shall put out both male and female, putting them outside the camp, that they may not defile their camp in the midst of which I dwell. This woman is religiously and socially outcast. She is not allowed in. Literally, she's outside the camp consistently. And when she comes in, Leviticus 15 has a whole litany of uh, descriptions of restrictions for such a person. Restrictions like if she sits on something, it becomes unclean. If she touches someone, he becomes unclean. So if she even was married at some point, it's a good chance she's no longer married in this culture. She's ceremonially unclean, so no temple, no worship, no being near the the presence of God, His holy dwelling among His people. She's not allowed there. She's not been allowed to touch anyone, and no one has been supposed to touch her for 12 years. Feel that pain for just a minute. No one's supposed to touch you, unclean, unworthy. Maybe you've had chronic pain or illness yourself. It can be physically and emotionally devastating, right? As it drags on month after month, year after year. Now, add to that the the social humiliation and isolation, some of which you may also have felt, but this woman definitely had. The religious distance, not being good enough, feeling not even God would have you near, perhaps wondering 
about that and what it meant for you. Let's contrast this woman with Jairus for just a minute. He's a a man and she is a woman. Adding to that perhaps initial difficulty, he runs the synagogue. She's banned from the synagogue. He's financially stable, good job. She has spent all she has trying to get a cure, now she's broke. He's socially in. People know Jairus. They want him around. They want to be known by him, liked by him. She's socially out in about every way you could imagine. No one enjoys hanging around with her. But notice that in this story, these two very different people are united in the same way. Both of them come together because they have a common need. They're both desperate, aren't they? Desperate. My daughter, 12-year-old girl. My illness for 12 years. Nothing can be done. And what do they do in their desperation? They run to Jesus. Both of them. We find two very different people following a very similar path now to Jesus So as as this woman desperately squeezes through the crowd, you can imagine it must have been quite a crowd for her to hide and be slipping in. She's probably concerned the whole time she'll be recognized. Someone will get angry with her for touching them and making them unclean. But she finally reaches out. She gets close enough, if I can just touch Jesus. Verse 44, she came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment And immediately her discharge of blood ceased. It stops. Immediately. And and now put yourself in her shoes. She realizes she's healed. Now to disappear. How to get away. How can I slip out of the crowd? Except for what? Jesus won't have that happen, will he? Jesus has other ideas. Verse 45, Jesus said... Who was it that touched me? And when all denied it, not not me, I I didn't touch him. Probably a lot of people had bumped into him. Everybody says, not me. And Peter says, come on, come on, Jesus. Master, the crowds surround you and are pressing in on you. But Jesus insists, no, someone touched me. For I perceive that power has gone out from me. Jesus stops, doesn't he? In the midst of a crowd rushing toward Jairus' house, he stops. He's concerned for her. Jesus sees the poor woman. Their eyes meet and perhaps she starts thinking, oh no, will I lose the cure? Will the healing go away? Will this man reject me like so many others? Will he expose me publicly for the unclean person that I am? And it's here in the midst of of those fears that we see Jesus' love on display alongside his power. We realize Jesus is not finished healing yet. Remarkable power has gone out from him, but Jesus heals and restores holistically, completely, and he's got more still for this woman. Verse 47, when the woman saw that she was not hidden, 
felt that before? I could just stay hidden. If no one would notice. If I could just stay hidden, but Jesus refuses. She saw she was no longer hidden. She came trembling and falling down before him, declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. Jesus seeks her and he wants to restore her, not in isolation, not by herself, but in community. She tells that story to everyone within earshot. They know of her uncleanness. They hear she's been healed. Maybe they're skeptical. Maybe some of them are starting to fume. Ah, did she touch me? Is there blood on my cloak? I can't believe her, the, the gall. And Jesus speaks grace. He said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Jesus speaks to her daughter. The only time in the whole Bible he uses that word. Not only do I not reject you, I include you in my family. You are clean. You've been made well. You are welcome. God himself embraces your touch. Jesus insists on holistic healing, that not just she, but everyone around her see what has happened. See, if Jesus had just wanted the blood to stop flowing after 12 years, which would be miraculous enough, he could have just kept on walking to his seemingly more important destination, right? She tells us she had already been healed. Verse 47, that's the word for physical healing. Jesus instead stops And says, your faith has made you well. A holistic word. Yes, it includes physical healing. But often this word is used to include spiritual healing, salvation, relational healing. Go in peace, in community, in restored relationship with God who speaks to you and with his people. Right? He loved her too much. To stop short of that healing. She trusted his amazing power. And that power healed her completely. In every way. Amazing. But don't forget Jairus. Jairus is getting anxious, right? He's got a a 12-year-old little girl at home dying. And... We don't know if he was patient or impatient, but what's got to be in his heart? Come on, Jesus. Let's get going. She needs you. And now Jesus has delayed for too long. Verse 49. While he was still speaking, someone from the ruler's house came and said, Your daughter is dead. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. Perhaps they've heard the rumors of Jesus' healing power, but death seems to be too much, too final in their minds. Just, Just come on home, Jairus, and start to grieve. That's what's needful now. Jesus is not thrown at all by this development. He doesn't hesitate. 
Jesus, on hearing this report, answered him, Do not fear. Only believe and she will be well. Believe, Jesus says. Echoes of of what we heard a couple weeks ago in the previous miracles in this passage where we saw the need for our natural fear to lead us to faith in Jesus. Of course Jesus understands Jairus' fear, right? Fear of losing a daughter. He's just been told she died. Jesus says, "Don't, don't be afraid. Believe in me. Trust me, I'm going to walk with you. Let's keep going. And they head to Jairus' house. They reach the home, verse 51. When he came to the house, he allowed no one to enter with him except Peter and John and James and the father and mother of the child. And all were weeping and mourning for her. But Jesus said, Do not weep, for she is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him knowing that she was dead. Jesus calls it sleeping because it will be temporary. But they're all clear that the girl is dead. They know that. And for the sake of this story, it's important for you to remember that dead equals unclean, right? You remember that list back in Numbers chapter 5? We don't have a leper in this story. We've seen it other places. But a woman with a discharge and now a dead body, things that make you unclean. No one can touch, but Jesus does. Verse 54, taking her by the hand, Luke says, he called saying, child, arise. And her spirit returned and she got up at once and he directed that something should be given her to eat. And her parents were amazed, but he charged them to tell no one what had happened. They're not supposed to tell. Matthew's gospel actually clarifies for us that word of this spread through the whole region. We don't know if they told or not, but Jairus was well known. The report of his daughter's death was publicly stated, and now here she is alive. And people begin to hear she's eating and walking, and relating with her parents as we see Jesus again intent on a holistic restoration. He raises her from the dead, but but feed her, hold her hand, parents, talk with her. Perhaps even more poignant or significant in this text, though, is, is we now have seen the unclean touch Jesus, the woman, We've now seen Jesus touch the unclean, this little girl. By all accounts, that uncleanness is supposed to flow into him. Instead, what happens? His cleanness flows into them. Jesus cleanses so powerfully that the flow is reversed. The the flow of sin, the flow of the curse that has been at work for many, many ages. The flow of death itself is turned backwards at the touch of Jesus. That which no one has been able to heal, which no one has been able to conquer, Jesus heals and Jesus conquers. His power is unmatched. You've seen nothing like it. 
So the call to us here is clearly to believe, to have faith in this powerful Savior. So in order that we might believe, Jesus gives us this incredible display of his power. I love waterfalls. Not that one in particular, it's off the internet, but but there's a lot of beautiful waterfalls like that. I love the, the grandeur of them, the majesty of a waterfall. The roar of the water as it, as it crashes down into the pool below over and over and over. And the power of a waterfall. There's power there, isn't there? You, you can hear it, you can feel it, you can see it when you're there. I want you to imagine something kind of silly this morning. Imagine that you're standing at the bottom of this powerful waterfall and you've completely covered yourself in mud. And for some strange reason, in your uncleanness, you've decided that you would like to make the waters at the top of that waterfall dirty because you like mud. And so covered in mud, you think to yourself, that's what I'm going to, I'm going to get up there and make everything dirty. And so you find yourself at the base of that waterfall, right where it crashes into the pool below. And for a split second, you think, yes, I'm, I'm going up there. That's the way this uncleanness is going to move, only to be absolutely pummeled down, probably a little painfully, several feet underwater by the utter power of the waterfall crashing down on you. When you come up for air sometime later, how much mud is on you? Not much, right? Not, not much of that that stuck to you so well a minute ago. So far from spreading your mud up that waterfall to the top, so far from that, it washes you and the mud just kind of disappears, goes away. That's just a taste of the healing power of Jesus. One drop of his shed blood, one touch of his gracious hand, and Satan and his demons retreat. Sickness is pushed back, and death itself dies. One touch from Jesus. Step back for just a minute this morning and get a glimpse of his power. As we've looked back over these last few miracles, his power over all of creation, over demons, over tormented people, over incurable illnesses, over situations that are beyond our power and control, over death itself. He indeed is the divine deliverer, the one we can trust, the one who saves us, the the range of his power, what he is strong enough to handle is incalculable. And the reach of his love is likewise breathtaking. Last time, the disciples receive it. He loves the the demoniac, the townspeople who reject him, he pursues in love. This time, an influential man 
an outcast woman, a dead little girl, receive personal, life-altering love that reaches into our sin, into our hurt, into our shame, and heals and restores completely. Just stop and think about that for a minute. Marvel at his power, his love. One side note here before I ask us a couple questions to consider as we finish. Um, Don't be misled by someone who says this passage means that if we just have faith and enough faith, Jesus will heal when we ask, how we ask, for whom we ask, that that's what's going on. Yes, listen, Jesus calls us to faith here. And yes, he promises to heal and demonstrates his power. But remember even here that he often understands the healing needed better than we do. He often understands the healing that's needed better than we do. The woman wanted to hide, didn't she? Stop at physical healing. Jesus knew something better was needed. Jesus eventually heals the little girl, but his power is such that he can be trusted even when his timing seems bad, even when death itself gets in play. That doesn't stop him. Sometimes the bleeding persists for years. Sometimes Jesus seems to move more slowly towards our need than we are asking for. Sometimes in that frustrating timing, in that delay that we don't understand, death itself interferes. But listen, nothing, nothing, not time, not death, nothing stops our powerful and loving Savior from healing holistically and completely the one who trusts Him. Pray to Him. Pray. He is powerful. And He wants us to throw ourselves at His feet and plead for healing. He uses those prayers. Pray. And trust Him. He loves to heal. Sometimes in ways and at times even better than we imagine or would have been asking for. Two questions I want you to ask yourself as we prepare to come to this table this morning and celebrate together the cleansing power of Jesus. The first is what keeps you from throwing yourself at Jesus' feet? What would keep you from that? Like Jairus, it could be your pride and your own power. You don't need his power because you're, you're managing just fine. Life's okay. Y'all, we need to be honest. We struggle here, don't we? Many of us struggle feeling like ah, life's basically okay. I'm not sure, Will, if I know what it means to feel desperate. It's why we often don't pray the way many other believers have over history and do today because we don't feel as desperate as they do every morning when we wake up. We're we're okay. Like the woman, on the other hand, it, it could be your shame, your own helplessness. 
You don't want to come to Jesus because you don't want him or others exposed to the real you. It can feel safer to stay hidden, can't it? The beautiful thing here is the proud synagogue ruler and the poor, shameful woman both meet together at the feet of Jesus, united in their common need and in their common Savior who provides for both. Both desperate and both meeting the deliverer that they need. Listen, wherever you are this morning, don't let anything keep you from coming to Jesus. Come throw yourself at his feet. Plead for his power and his love to rescue you. Second question. Are we a community that fully embraces the unclean? We know Jesus does. Luke's not going to let us forget this question, is he? Over and over and over as you read through this gospel, we watch Jesus move towards those who are outcast and bring them in, in his community. In fact, we see again this morning the kind of community he's creating where outcasts like this woman are not merely healed, but are welcomed into a new community where they are clean. And how do you know? Because they are embraced as family by the king himself. And if the king embraces them, oh boy, everybody in the kingdom will too. They're clean and he says so. Are you just okay that there are unclean, outcast, misfit, religiously questionable people at your church? Or do you actually embrace them as Jesus does? I know you're glad they're here, but but what about in your life? Do you leave them on the fringes of social groups? Just glad to be able to say that you're not actively running them off. When was the last lunch you shared with someone who may have appeared unclean, but you embraced them as clean in Jesus? You may feel different from many people here at Southwood for any number of reasons. I don't know what it would be. But Jesus unites us in common desperate need with a common, gracious Savior, and that goes beyond anything else that would divide us. I'll be talking with you more in the days ahead about our core commitments as a church, things we want to characterize and and shape who we are. One of them is that in everything we do, we are committed to loving the least, the lost, the littlest, the lonely, and the left out. Loving them. Why? Because we know we are them. And Jesus has healed and embraced us. And so we are to be a place where the marginalized find a welcome. Where the hurting find a home. And you get to be a part of that. In fact, you must be a part of that. We won't be a place like that unless you are like that because that happens one relationship and one conversation at a time. That's what is demonstrated in this table where we gather to celebrate the single greatest act that Jesus did of healing 
We gather together and we love people that way who might seem unclean because we have the hope of a Savior who makes all of us clean. That's what we celebrate here, what Jesus did at the cross. Remember how Paul recounts Jesus' words in 1 Corinthians 11. Paul says, I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night he was betrayed took bread. And when he'd given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way also he took the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. This is the Lord's table. So if you know and trust the Lord Jesus, if you're part of the church of Jesus Christ, then come and celebrate with us this morning. If you don't know him, if you haven't trusted Jesus, God's word warns you not to come to this table, but at the same time invites you to come to Jesus, to know and to trust him, and we would be delighted to talk with you about that. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for the invitation to this table. Thank you for the body and blood of Jesus that invites us and welcomes us into your presence. Would you set these very common elements aside for a sacred purpose this morning that they might be to us a reminder of his death because of his love for us. A reminder of his cleansing power that that we are saved by the blood of the lamb and when he saves, he saves completely. Do that work, we pray, in this time. In Jesus' name, amen. For more information, visit us online at southwood.org.